From the National Society of Genetic Counselors, this is the NSGC podcast series. Exploring stories of leading voices and best practices in genetic counseling. Welcome to the NSGC podcast series. I'm your host, Naomi Wagner. We are excited to share this month's episode exploring population genomic screening and genetic counseling. We will discuss counseling considerations for genomic screening, especially considerations for returning results. As part of today's episode, we will discuss two genomic screening programs. First, we will discuss the MyCode Genomic Screening and Counseling Program, as well as a recent Journal of Genetic Counseling article that provides case examples from this program. The article featured in today's discussion is titled, Genetic Counseling for Patients with Positive Genomic Screening Results. Considerations for when the genetic test comes first. The MyCode Community Health Initiative is a precision medicine project with a focus on genetic research through Geisinger Health in Pennsylvania. Over 300,000 participants have consented, and over 3,600 individuals have received results from MyCode to date. The MyCode Genomic Screening and Counseling Program returns clinically relevant DNA sequence findings to participants. We will also discuss the All of Us Research Program. The National Institutes of Health All of Us Research Program is partnering with 1 million or more people across the United States to build the most diverse biomedical data resource of its kind to help accelerate health research and medical breakthroughs, enabling individualized prevention, treatment, and care for all of us. Genomic research results from the All of Us Program will be made available to participants who consent to receive them and those participants will have free, unlimited access to genetic counseling services through Color, which was awarded the All of Us Research Program's genetic counseling resource. Three genetic counselors will join us today in conversation. Our speakers today are Marcy Schwartz, Amy Curry-Sturm, and Kelly Tagney. Marcy is a genetic counselor with experience in genomic screening and research program management. She is currently a program manager with the Cardiac Genome Clinic through the Ted Rogers Center for Heart Research at the Hospital for Sick Children. Amy is a genetic counselor with 20 years of experience. She served as the 2019 president of NSGC, and her current role is the director of population health genomics at 23andMe. Kelly is the head of genetic counseling services at Color Health where she leads a team of genetic counselors dedicated to counseling patients and their families at risk for hereditary, adult-onset conditions, and expanding Color's mission of broadening access to genetic services. Kelly is also the lead genetic counselor for the National Institute of Health's All of Us Research Program, Genetic Counseling Resource, providing culturally aware genetic counseling services at an unprecedented scale to participants with goals to improve equitability and reduce health disparities related to genetic testing and counseling. Without further ado, I'll pass it over to podcast subcommittee member Mary Pat, who will join our speakers in conversation on this exciting topic. This is Mary Pat, and I'm here today with Marcy Schwartz, Kelly Tagney, and Amy Sturm to discuss genomic screening, optimizing results return, and an example of an active genomic screening program, all of us. Thank you for making the time to be here today, Marcy. It's a pleasure. We'll focus this first section of our episode on your and Amy's recent paper. The title of the paper is Genetic Counseling for Patients with Positive Genomic Screening Results. 
considerations for when the genetic test comes first. Can you tell us a little bit more about your experience with genomic screening and what prompted your team to write the paper? Yes, Amy and I were both a member of a team for several years that worked on a project called the MyCode Community Health Initiative Genomic Screening and Counseling Program. And what that is, it's a large-scale biobank-based genomic screening program through Geisinger Health System, which is a rural health system primarily located in central and northeastern Pennsylvania. And through that program, biobank participants undergo research-based exome sequencing, and the data are screened for pathogenic and likely pathogenic variants, most from genes on the ACMG secondary findings list. So the role of different team members, and particularly a number of the genetic counselors on our team, involved a number of aspects of that program and implementing them. So we're involved with things like calling out patients to disclose those results, providing post-test counseling, helping facilitate cascade testing for relatives, and also conducting research to sort of better understand things like the natural history of disease in the population and patient follow-up care decisions. So really through designing this program and implementing it and caring for these patients, our team recognized that we had some specialized expertise in this area and that there are some unique considerations for patient care with this type of genotype first approach because these patients were coming to us based on a genotype, right? They didn't have a personal history-based risk assessment and clinical testing based on a family or personal history of disease. So this sort of ascertainment was becoming more and more common, and we felt that we were well positioned to write about it, especially because the project was quite large, which meant we had experience caring for a lot of patients with a lot of different kinds of results. You have a really nice flowchart of some of the ways that genomic screening differs from the traditional genetic counseling model. You've mentioned some of those before. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so in thinking about how genomic greening influences genetic counseling, I think there are really two broad categories that can be useful to think about. So one is how the ascertainment method differs. So since patients aren't screened based on personal or family health history, that generally means they have a lower a priori risk for disease than a clinically ascertained population. And that really has a cascading effect on downstream care considerations. So on average, with a lower a priori risk, that means that the positive predictive value of the test is lower. When you're thinking about risk assessment, particularly the piece where you're thinking about the patient's risk because of their genotype, most of those numbers and the phenotypes that have been described for conditions were generated based on patients with a personal or family history of disease. So they don't apply quite as well to this genomic screening type of population. And you need to take that into account that they're probably a little bit of an overestimate for most of those families. Another downstream implication of that is that diagnostic criteria and management guidelines are all sort of designed under that same umbrella based on your clinically ascertained families. They're not really optimized for this genomic screening type of population. For example, a lot of diagnostic criteria incorporate genotype, and they may say something like a pathogenic variant in this condition is equivalent to a diagnosis. And that's not accurate when you know the patient has no features of that disease. 
So that first ascertainment difference is really important for a lot of the more medical aspects of the patient care. Then the service delivery model that is used as the other thing that I think can kind of differ a little bit. And this will vary based on how a patient came to get genomic screening, but it will influence how you guide that discussion with your patient and prepare for the case. So things like, did the patient have any type of pretest risk assessment? Did they have pretest counseling? How did they come to get testing? What are the details of the genetic test itself? And like, what does it cover? Is it a clinically grade test? All of the things like that are kind of service delivery model consideration and considerations that are more likely to diverge from your more typical sort of clinical setting that counselors should be thinking about. How about the upfront piece? You've talked a little bit about that, like what's bringing the patient to the clinic. And I feel like we always kind of consider what's the context in which we're seeing someone, what's their background, what's their story. Are there key pieces that you find were particularly important when talking to patients about this that you thought about? Yes. One of the things with the patients that I saw is they were all coming through me through this same program at MyCode. And I had a sense of how they came to get their genetic testing results. And I think one of the features of biobank-based genomic screening program or like a large-scale screening program where there's not a lot of upfront consent and that patients are actively approached to enroll is that they might not be quite as engaged upfront as you would see through something like a genomic screening test where the patient sought it out and paid for. Through my code, we found that it wasn't that uncommon to have patients that weren't that highly engaged, and that influenced how we would talk about the results with them. So you kind of have to start at a different point. Contracting is really important to gauge their understanding of things. They may have no familiarity with the condition at all. I think some conditions are harder than others. Most people haven't heard of a paraganglioma unless they've been diagnosed with it, but they might know about breast cancer. You know, their lived experiences with the condition are different. Some patients are kind of the opposite, where they may have a diagnosis of that phenotype for years, and they may not understand how a genetic result changes that. So I feel like we saw that a lot with familial hypercholesterolemia, where the patients had elevated lipid levels, they've been treated for years, they may know it's kind of in their family, but they don't understand how this result influences the magnitude of their risk or their treatment options. So you have to take that into account. Some other things were just thinking about the timing of the results over the life course and what the patient was experiencing. A lot of the patients may have been elderly when they signed up for the study, and they may not be highly engaged with abstract health risks. You may have people who have just other competing health interests, regardless of age. There may be personal considerations, whether there's been a recent job change or life change or financial strain or something that are going to influence their desire to act on something that sort of may be to them an abstract risk. And I don't think you see that quite as much in the more traditional clinical setting where there's a more emergent health problem that has brought somebody to attention. In summary, I think that contracting piece and not making the same assumptions that you'd make up front can be really important. One other thing to highlight in your paper and Amy's paper is I really liked the use of case examples to illustrate some of the key pieces to think about when we're giving these types of results versus kind of a more targeted testing to highlight some tips being mindful of absent or atypical phenotypes as well as stressing some of the limitations to genomic screening versus targeted traditional screening. I'm wondering if you could provide some of those tips to our listeners. Yes, of course. So in thinking about 
the absent and atypical phenotypes, this is definitely something that comes up, I think, a lot more often in genomic screening populations, because when you cast this broader net, you're going to catch more fish. You got to think about the reasons that those phenotypes may be absent or atypical. So sometimes just maybe that there's the lack of information there. It may be an age-dependent penetrance phenotype and everyone's really young, so they haven't had a chance to develop disease yet. There are a number of considerations that apply, of course, in the regular clinical setting, like limited family structure and things like that. That guides sort of the patient experience with the condition and how you're going to talk about it. I think the atypical phenotypes are always interesting and Mm -hmm. it's a challenge to toe the line of saying, is this related to this result or not? But as we do more research in a genomic screening space, I think those will be fleshed out a little bit better. And that the sort of ongoing research is very valuable to keep your finger on the pulse when you're providing patient care in this work, because as time goes on, there will be more and more publications sort of describing the risk and the features of these conditions and cohorts. And it's really helpful to guide how you're going to talk about it with patients. I think two of the case examples were fairly typical of this, of what I'd seen. So one was an ARBC case example where there was an absent phenotype. And I think that was fairly typical of that condition and what we were seeing through my code. And there's been some works published on that condition in particular through some research that has been done. Whereas another example was of a patient with a RET result who had a new medullary thyroid cancer diagnosis. And I think those both highlight different scenarios, but it's an opportunity to think about how different genetic conditions need to be treated differently in genomic screening. So I think it will be very different for conditions that are found to be highly penetrant, even in general population cohorts from those that aren't. And that'll be something that's helpful as time goes on to really know about. And I think that as I gained more experience that guided some of my discussions with patients of how reassuring I was is not and sort of setting expectations. Like for a RET result, there's a reasonable chance that we might find that you have cancer, whereas with ARBC, you may be thinking that it's less likely that you probably have a phenotype that you're not aware of. You know, in terms of limitations of genomic screening, this is really going to be a big feature of whatever tests that the person had done. But one key point is that genomic screening isn't really a substitute for traditional clinical processes. When you're collecting personal or family history information after genomic screening results, it's really important to both target the assessment to the specific genetic results and then also think a little bit more broadly about what things might warrant a referral for additional genetics assessments. I definitely had patients that I found something and I referred them on to clinical genetics and they found additional genetic syndromes. But there was also the opposite happened where somebody maybe came in who had a known genetic condition or had gone through genetic counseling and possibly genetic testing and was either not found to have anything or not a candidate. And then we found a result through genomic screening. So I think both the clinical genetic testing and genomic screening can complement each other because neither is perfect. And the biggest thing is that one shouldn't be substituted for the other, especially when there's a clinical indication for testing. How might genetic counselors be impacted by genomic screening in a more traditional clinic? 
Yeah, so I think the most common way will probably be genetic counselors receiving referrals or seeing patients who had a positive genomic screening result outside of a setting where a counselor is kind of specialized in that because they work on a program or work in an institution that has a program that generates genomic screening results. I think most likely counselors will encounter it more periodically on a sort of a case-by-case basis. It is possible that one day genomic screening, at least for certain genes or conditions, may become Um, more broad, and then it will be more impactful across the board. I also think there are learnings from genomic screening in certain clinical settings with more clinical tests. So as exome and genome become more common, counselors are going to get ACMG secondary findings, which are a form of genomic screening. And a lot of the lessons from these types of programs like MyCode will be able to inform care for those patients. I also think expanded panel testing will have similar effects as more and more patients test positive for genes where they maybe didn't have a specific indication that fits with that gene that they test positive for just because it's part of some big panel and the learnings from genomic screening can touch that as well. I think it's an area we all are struggling with, just like you said, the secondary results with exome and in some of the larger panels, those unexpected results. How about for yourself personally? I'd be really interested in maybe one or two ways that all this robust experience with genomic screening may influence how you approach patients in a more targeted kind of traditional clinical setting. My current role doesn't involve any direct patient care, but when I worked in my code, I had a period where I was also providing some routine patient care through the cancer genetics clinic. And honestly, I found that I was experiencing some cognitive dissonance by seeing these families with positive results through my code in genes that I maybe would not have offered them genetic testing to if I saw them in cancer clinic. And knowing that they were positive for that and looking at, for example, like a family with all colon cancer in their history, that's pretty striking. And then they come back for BRCA1 positive and like they're scratching my head. Oh gosh, we don't know so much about everything. I found that to be a challenging experience, but also very rewarding because when you're in a traditional clinical setting, you don't get any type of feedback about all of the genetic results that you're missing on somebody. So every pathogenic variant in a gene that you didn't test on a person you don't realize you've missed it unless they come back for future testing or come to find it through some other way. So seeing patients through genomic screening, it felt like a real opportunity to see the full spectrum of disease. Ultimately, I think the way that influenced my clinical counseling was that it made me a little bit more inclined to offer bigger tests, so more expanded panel testing to patients who are interested. You know, of course, I have a discussion with them about their level of tolerance for things like results in conditions that indicated risk unrelated to the reason we were testing them and variants of uncertain significance and things like that. But if they were okay with that, I would be more more likely to offer them a bigger test if it's something that would be an option for them based on their insurance coverage and all of that. I think I was also a little bit more inclined to look for features of other genetic conditions during my case prep or the history taking process, especially for some of the more common conditions that have a higher population prevalence, like familial hypercholesterolemia that I wouldn't normally be thinking about in a cancer clinic. I guess through my code, it made it more obvious how often there might be multiple genetic conditions in a family. I mean, if you think about any recessive condition you're seeing often two pathogenic variants in the same gene. But if you throw in autosomal dominant disorders, it's not that uncommon in some ways to have two pathogenic variants in any two genes that can cause a genetic condition. So the simplest explanation isn't always the only one. Sure. It sounds like you're maybe even more thorough 
than perhaps before, whereas before you might have been slightly more targeted. We always like to ask if there's anything else that we didn't discuss that you'd like to share with our listeners. So one thing I don't think I mentioned is that I think it's important to think about how this affects families, especially in the context of the multiple genetic results. So, of course, cascade testing is really important, and that's going to be one of the hallmarks of genomic screening program and the the reach of that. But in some of the cases that I described where we were thinking about the residual risk assessment and things like that, it was often challenging for some of these multi-result families if they've already been through the testing process and then we find something else, or just thinking about residual risk assessment in those relatives and who would be the best person to offer something more than a familial variant test. So one other thing that's important for a genomic screening context in particular is thinking about how a genetic result is not equivalent to a diagnosis of the phenotypic condition. So one way that it's been outlined in one paper that's available out there is separating sort of the molecular diagnosis, which would be something like a monoallelic mutation in the MYH7 gene from a clinical diagnosis, which would be something like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, from a clinical molecular diagnosis, which would be MYH7-associated cardiomyopathy in somebody that has both the genotype and phenotype. And in a genomic screening context where there's not necessarily a personal or family history, I think using precise language to separate those three things from each other is important to avoid sort of confusion in the downstream care for patients. I can imagine, especially when we think about things like the problem list or what we choose to enter or how we choose to enter that information. Yes, I think we highlighted that in the paper. But when we added things on the problem list, it was really important not to say someone had phenotypic features of a disease just because they got a genetic result. Well, thank you so much, Marcy, for taking the time to speak with us today. Yes, it was lovely. Over the last few years, there have been several different local genomic screening initiatives, the Healthy Oregon Project, Florida Holme, and Mayo Clinic's Tapestry Program. All of us is a current example of a large program with a genomic screening component. For the second half of this episode, we'll discuss the project and the impact research programs such as all of us may have on genetics now and in the future. Kelly and Amy are our speakers for this section. Kelly, can you tell us about the All of Us program, maybe your role, the primary goals of All of Us, and what types of results will be shared? Yes, happy to. The NIH's All of Us research program is an effort to collect and study data from 1 million or more people living in the United States. As you mentioned, Mary Pat, it's a really large research program, and it does come with a genomic screening component. So my role within the program is leading the genetic counseling services that are offered through all of us, especially in the return of genomic results to participants. So I've helped build out the genomic return of research results processes and policies from a client and participant-centered lens. And I've also helped build the team of genetic counselors who will support all of us participants through their receipt of genomic research results and also help connect these participants to the right resources and next steps. So many genetic counselors may have heard of all of us or may even be employed at an all of us enrollment site at a healthcare medical center. But a few things I want to highlight about all of us include 
that the program is really focused on partnering with people and populations historically excluded from biomedical research and who have especially been excluded from genomics research to really enroll participants who better reflect the diversity of the United States. I think that's a really novel area that we're, we're really excited about. Also, participants are really thought of as partners who can not only provide data in a research program setting, but who can also learn more about their own health through their participation. So Participants can choose if they want to receive results and information back about their health through detailed consent processes. And the program also sends regular updates through emails or in-app notifications to help participants learn more about their own health, about social determinants of health, about genomics. So I'll dig into that probably later on in our discussion, but the program is really good about sending kind of regular updates on health and health literacy information. I think one of the slogans is without you, it won't be all of us, which I thought was a really nice inclusive way to summarize some of the goals. Can you talk a little bit about the types of results that will be shared? Yeah, good question. So genomics is a large part of the All of Us Research Program, as I mentioned. There's a lot of other key initiatives, too. And the first aspect will be returning genetic results. While we do research, again, we can kind of share this information back with participants. Right now, we are currently sharing information with participants who want to receive their genetic ancestry and certain genetic trait results. So we've been returning those since November of 2020. And then shortly, we'll start returning health-related DNA results. So that includes information about a person's hereditary disease risk through the ACMG recommended secondary findings 2.0 list, so the ACMG 59 genes, and then also returning seven pharmacogenomic genes. I feel like as genetic counselors, sometimes we have strong opinions about which results should be presented first or be included or not. Can you talk a little bit about how your team, how the All of Us team decided what results would be included and the order? Yes, great question. I think just in recent years, views on returning individual results in a research setting have evolved, as you can see from programs like MyCode and others. There is growing public demand that research participants receive all of their results and information. The All of Us Research Program really thought carefully about which genetic results would be most valuable, most appropriate, most applicable to participants. And they kind of wanted to reconceptualize the return of value. So to encompass the varied ways in which research participants value specific results and more general information they receive beyond actionable results. The program did conduct a national survey with a general population, which turned out that a lot of individuals wanted to receive research genetic results, and that actually receiving those results, those participants in that study felt like they were more likely to trust the researchers and the research program if they were really upfront and clear and communicative, as well as receiving back that information. And so in that study, both medication response results and results predicting disease risk were highly favored. Also, the program met with subject matter experts from the NIH, FDA, Office of Civil Rights, 
other genomics and technology experts in the planning phases. So they incorporated all of that to kind of decide when and what to return. I think when it comes to genetic ancestry and traits results, a lot of us as clinical genetic counselors kind of poo-poo those results as far as they don't have an impact on medicine and medical care most of the time. But we've learned from our involvement in the All of Us Research Program and returning those results that actually it has been a really valuable engagement tool. I think it's also offered an opportunity for participants to maybe get used to unexpected or different information from what they thought they would receive or more complex genetic results before kind of priming them for those health-related results. So we've been able to talk to participants that call in about those results, about what they think about them and questions they have. And it's been a really valuable experience. Can you share a little bit more about what other resources will be available to patients and provider surrounding the All of Us results? Yes. So there are lots of resources available. We've been spending a great deal of time thinking about and consolidating resources for this bridge from research result, which will be returned to kind of the clinical utilization of these for both participants and providers. I think from early on in the planning and the details of this program, all of us has been really careful to make sure we're not just handing participants a genomic research results with potentially actionable findings and then leaving them to navigate the next steps. As I mentioned, they do think of participants as partners. And so we really want to help create those connections, not only to provide resources with those results, but also empower participants to take the next steps in their health journey. So this will be a really big focus for us in our genetic counseling sessions with all of us participants and one we've been training for and focusing on because really you can give a research participant information, but how that is applied is really where the transformation can occur, where it can be applied in their life and their health journey that does lead to better outcomes. So we've carefully designed the results themselves, which are available in a web format and a shareable PDF to be really clear, concise, use very simple language. We also have provider information sheets. So when you are a participant in all of us and you're receiving your genetic results, you can share those results with your healthcare providers, which we do recommend and we'll definitely be talking about in our genetic counseling sessions. But we're also going to include kind of this information sheet and what you can think of as like a cliff notes version for providers that may not be as well versed in utilizing genetic results or the next steps. So that's another resource that will be available. And then, you know, all participants who choose to receive their health-related DNA results through all of us will be able to schedule unlimited telephone genetic counseling appointments with myself and my team at no charge. And so we'll be able to really walk them through, again, that verbal disclosure of what the result is, how to integrate it, how to, you know, get clinical confirmation for these results, because it is a research result. So another resource is that any participant with a pathogenic or likely pathogenic finding detected by all of us in one of the 59 hereditary disease risk genes will have the option to undergo clinical confirmation testing at no charge through the program. So that's an important way to allow kind of greater access and also that we can transition to that next clinical step if need be. It's a lot of support. That's offered. In clinic, we often see families these days that bring in raw data that has been run through different software programs. I'm curious if the all of us participants will have access to their data and any support your team has thought about around that topic. Yes. 
Great question. The program is considering returning raw data from genome sequencing to participants who want this information in the future, but it would require additional FDA approval that's not currently in place. So if the program does gain that further approval, we will be sure to accompany that data with the appropriate educational information and setting the stage for how that data can be used safely and responsibly. At Color, we get this request from individuals all the time. As a genetic counselor, I do feel that push and pull of providing access, but also opening Pandora's box in some way. Ultimately, we have seen the the good that this information can provide. I think there are pluses and minuses to providing that information. I did just present a case at the Precision Medicine SIG case conference last month in which a person obtained their raw data through a DTC company, ran it through the third-party data analysis and discovered a previously unknown mutation in KCNQ1 that was actually very beneficial for their healthcare and outcomes. So I don't see us as gatekeepers of this raw data, but I think we as genetic counselors really do need to set the context and kind of put our educator hats on and provide the right resources needed to use that data responsibly. How about patients we may see or genetic counselors themselves that may be interested in participating in all of us? Is that still an option? Yes, 100%. So participation is open to all eligible adults who live in the United States. Currently, we have over half a million people have signed up and signed our primary consent form and started their journey in the All of Us Research Program. So we're only about halfway there, which is kind of exciting because there is a whole new territory to enroll. People of every race, ethnicity, sex, gender, sexual orientation, location are welcome. It doesn't require health insurance to be healthy or not healthy. It's really again for all of us. And you can sign up directly through joinallofus.org or there are participating healthcare provider organizations around the country, mostly large medical organizations that can help with enrollment as well. Amy, I wanted to ask, you serve as the chair of Genetic Counseling Resource Advisory Board for all of us. Can you share how you got involved and who else may be on that panel? Yeah, absolutely. So thanks again for having us on and covering this topic, Mary Pat. I became involved in the All of Us Research Program and serving as chair of the advisory board to the Genetic Counseling Resource via some mutual colleagues who are the principal investigators of the award from NIH for the Genetic Counseling Resource. So those two individuals are Elisa Zhao and Scott Topper at Color. And it was, my goodness, probably maybe back in 2016 or 2017, you know, somewhere around those late teens that I first came in contact with Alicia. And she and I met at a familial hypercholesterolemia summit, which is an area of expertise that I've really grown over the years and have gotten really involved in. And so we met and became fast colleagues. We had so many common interests in the space of using genomic information for disease prevention. And so we kept in touch. We also saw each other again at an NHLBI polygenic risk score workshop that I was co-chairing and that Alicia was attending. And, you know, you kind of develop these collegial relationships with people over the years. You know, I had known her from that. And then also, as Marcy talked about, I spent five years of my career at Geisinger leading the MyCode Community Health Initiative and its genomic screening and counseling program. So Alicia and Scott knew of my work in that space from different conversations and talks about potential collaborations between their work at Color and what we were doing at Geisinger. And then the year that the Genetic Counseling Resource Award was granted from the NIH was 2019. 
And I happened to be the president of the National Society of Genetic Counselors that year. And so I think all of these different things culminated in me coming to mind for Alicia and Scott as a potential chair for the advisory board. It's been really wonderful to be able to say yes to that opportunity. From that point on, it was really my role to work hand in hand with Alicia, Scott. Back at that time, Kelly's predecessor, Lauren Ryan, was the head of genetic counseling services at Color. So I really worked with the three of them to then build out what the advisory board would look like. And it's important to realize, you know, all of us has a lot of advisory panels and boards and working groups. It is an absolutely immense organization. And there is a much broader All of Us Research Program advisory panel that is really an advisory group to the entire All of Us Research Program. Really excitedly, I can give a shout out to one of our colleagues, Erica Ramos, genetic counselor, who sits on that larger advisory panel alongside many different types of, you know, people with broad types of expertise and for why they were asked to be on this larger, broader advisory panel for all of us. And so in thinking about the advisory board for the genetic counseling resource specifically, we really wanted to have that made up of genetic counselors. So in addition to me, there are six other genetic counselors that serve on that board, Caitlin Brown, Heather Hample, Barbara Harrison, Priscilla Delgado-Hodges, Kathy Wickland, and Heather Zierhut. We've reached out to these individuals and invited them to be on the advisory board because of their specific experience, their expertise. You know, we really knew that we needed people who had experience working with underserved diverse populations, telegenetics, other novel service delivery models, population genomic screening. And we also wanted to make sure that across the advisory board, there was diverse clinical expertise, people who had deep expertise in cancer genetics, pharmacogenomics, rare disease, cardiovascular disease. And then we also wanted to make sure that we had that public health, outcomes research, implementation science, education and training. So We really thought long and hard about who we wanted to invite to serve on this advisory board. And luckily, everyone accepted the invitation to join. And we are going to be finishing up our three-year term at the end of this year. And Kelly and her team will be building out a new advisory and advocacy board for the future of all of us and the genetic counseling resource, which is really exciting. You touched on a little bit having genetic counselors on the panel that have experience working with individuals that have historically been excluded from a lot of medical research. I know there's been a lot of excitement in the genetic counseling community about all of us. I think one of the concerns is just overall making sure that we're doing a good job supporting individuals who historically may have not been able to participate or had the support that they need. Can you talk a little bit beyond what we've discussed so far, Kelly and Amy, about what all of us has done to support those individuals, both in terms of recruitment, but also results disclosure and follow-up? Yes, definitely. This has been a concern that I think predates the All of Us Research Program, but also one that is really important and one the program is ultra aware of and has been really intentional about addressing at every level from the core values to governances to partner selection. So really to help bridge trust and serve as program validators in the community across the country. All of us partners with lots of regional and local organizations with really deep reach into the communities that have been 
historically underrepresented in biomedical and genomics research. And these partners conduct lots of activities, lots of engagement. They help with enrollment and retention of diverse participants. Another important step, which we haven't really talked about, is they actually help engage researchers who are from diverse backgrounds. So not only the participants that we hope to recruit and enroll are from historically underserved and underrepresented backgrounds, but also the researchers who are taking this data and translating it into health outcomes. The program really wants them to also be heard and have access to that data, be able to utilize the data and resources to advance precision medicine. The other thing we've been thinking about from the genetic counseling side is, again, how do we bridge that gap for participants? We have started an initiative called the Transition to Care, which is within our All of Us program partnership. And we've pulled together resources to give participants based on their needs, based on that genetic counseling session and discussion. So things like screening options for participants who are un or underinsured at state and local levels, how to connect and establish care with providers or specialists based on their needs, their language, their gender identity, their background, their health history, which regional genetic organizations may be relevant. And of course, how to find a local genetic a counselor near them if need be. Amy, maybe you can tell us a little bit more too if the genetic counseling community, if there's any feedback that you've gotten from them that may have impacted decisions made around all of us, return of results, or just different facets of the program. Yeah, absolutely. That was really the major role of our advisory board. And not only the specific members I mentioned earlier that are officially on the advisory board, but other genetic counselors that we did bridge into the conversation based on some of their experiences. And then people who, you know, may have also reached out organically with ideas and thoughts about the genetic counseling resource and about all of us. And really from the genetic counseling resources advisory board's perspective, it was really our mission to be able to provide recommendations recommendations, input, and have an impact on how the genetic counseling resource ended up being shaped. And so I can give you some specific examples of that. You know, Kelly mentioned earlier that the All of Us Research Program is going to be providing clinical confirmation of the health-related results. And on top of that, paying for it. When the GCR first kicked off in 2019, that wasn't the original plan. It was something that the All of Us Research Program planned to return results, but these were going to be, quote-unquote, research results. And individuals were going to be informed that it was important to clinically confirm their results. And a lot of us who had worked for years in different types of research studies had a lot of like red flags around that because we knew that it was probably a high likelihood for people to just drop off at that point, maybe not understand the process, maybe not be able to access that process or pay for that process and have a lot of barriers to actually getting that done. So the team at Color at the Genetic Counseling Resource agreed with this stance and the advisory board really gave, I would say, urged the All of Us Research Program to go ahead and somehow provide a path to clinical confirmation and again, pay for it. So it was great because the leadership listened and they agreed that that was definitely important. They rethought how to do this. They came up with the budget to do it. They completely made workflows to do it. So that was really exciting to us because we knew how our discussions were having what we considered to be a really big impact that would benefit participants. And then, you know, we also did a lot of bridge building from genetic counselors out there in the community to the GCR, the Genetic Counseling Resource. So we all knew of different genetic counselors who had pretty deep experience, like Marcy, you know, returning a lot of these clinically actionable results and had talked to hundreds of patients in different types of research studies and taken care of them after they had gone through population genomic screening. So we connected Kelly and her team to these types of individuals, to psychologists, 
that actually had experience providing care to individuals receiving unanticipated genomic risk results. We helped in that regard. And then we had a lot of additional recommendations. Our board was made up of people, again, like I commented on earlier, who had vast experience working with underserved and minority populations. And so there were a lot of recommendations about translation of results reports into languages beyond English and Spanish, if at all possible, getting input from native Spanish-speaking individuals on translation. We also have several genetic counselors on the advisory board who have deep experience and knowledge in outcomes research. All of us is an amazing resource. And the thought about this large of a study cohort undergoing genetic counseling and what an amazing opportunity that is to study outcomes of the genetic counseling process was something that we discussed extensively with the genetic counseling resource as well. And then we provided input on multiple different topics. This advisory board typically met for two to three hours every quarter. And Kelly and I would always build out the agenda of important topics. And a lot of those were where she and her team really wanted to get input from the ad board. And this ranged from things like she mentioned earlier, the whole transition to care process. I mean, that's a big deal. These individuals, a lot of them may not have a primary care physician. They may not have easy access to care. They might not know how to follow up with a specialist for their risk result. And so we talked extensively about that transition to care. More recently, we were able to view and give input and feedback on the research and clinical reports that participants will be receiving. We also talked a lot about how to approach loss to follow-up individuals. Some of these individuals signed their all of us consent quite some time ago. And then if we have a really important clinical result that needs to be given to them, what happens if they're lost to follow-up? What is that process? It's a really wide range of topics where we we were able to give input recommendations. And it was great to see that the advisory board was hopefully able to have an impact here. Great to hear about genetic counselors making a true difference and, and impacting research on many different levels. To wrap things up, it would be great to hear from both of you, Amy and Kelly. Since All of Us is such a huge project, what are you most looking forward to learning about from this program? Yeah, so this is Amy. I can go ahead and jump in first. After leading a program like MyCode and its genomic screening counseling program at Geisinger for five years, I've thought a ton about what I hope to see research can learn from population genomic screening projects. And at Geisinger, while we were able to enroll over 300,000 people and had returned results, now I think they have returned results to over 3,600 people, the sheer volume of individuals that are going to be participating in all of us is going to take this to a whole nother level because at Geisinger, we really wanted to contribute to the field by asking question about, hey, what's the penetrance of these actionable variants in unselected populations? I mean, that is a huge question. And we realized that we could probably contribute to knowledge in that space for some of the more common conditions, but for even some of the conditions like the hereditary arrhythmias, cardiomyopathies, more rarer diseases, more rarer cancer syndromes, we just weren't going to have the volume of individuals with positive results followed for enough years to be able to answer that question. And that is a huge piece of information that we really need to understand to determine the risk benefit, the cost benefit of even doing population genomic screening and what genes and what conditions should be on these genomic screening lists. So I personally am really excited for all of us based on their goal to enroll 1 million plus individuals in the country to be able to help us answer that question. Yeah, I think that's all great points, Amy. And I think there are bound to be many beneficial learnings from all of us, including learning about those potential risks and penetrance 
I think from a GC lens, I'm also really looking forward to unpacking how historically underrepresented individuals and communities really best receive genetic counseling, how we as genetic counselors can serve these individuals and how our approach, our communication, how our partnership with communities can improve. It's not just individuals and populations who are underrepresented in genomics research. It's listening and truly embracing those voices who have been mistreated in genomics and research and really incorporating those perspectives into our practices. So learning about how can we increase our scope to provide truly culturally aware, supportive, client and culture-centered genetic counseling in potentially healthy populations. What are the best practices for those? So I'm really looking forward to hearing from the genetic counselors who are talking to these participants, being one of those and really consolidating that and also partnering with all of you, the genetic counselors in the community, really helping these individuals and families in your area about how we can provide better, more robust genetic health care and services for individuals and for all of us. Thanks so much to both of you again for speaking with us today. I feel like you both really illustrate my favorite thing about genetic counseling. It's always changing. There's always new opportunities ahead of us. So thanks again. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you, Mary Pat. And thank you again to all of our speakers. I know we are all looking forward to continuing to learn about population genomic screening projects and to see how our counseling practices continue to evolve over time. To read Marcy, Amy, and colleagues' full article in the Journal of Genetic Counseling, visit nsgc.org forward slash Journal of Genetic Counseling. That concludes this month's episode of the NSGC podcast series. For more genetic counseling educational opportunities, check out the online education center at nsgc.org. In addition, stay tuned for the next NSGC webinar on September 7th, 2022. This webinar, Non-Positional Leadership, How to Grow Your Leadership Skills Without a Leadership Title, will be hosted by the Leadership and Management Special Interest Group. This recording is produced by the National Society of Genetic Counselors. I'm your host, Naomi Wagner, and we'll see you next time.